Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. Our Sunday services have now moved online and you can tune in every week for worship, prayer and our weekly sermon by going to christchurchlondon.org forward slash church hyphen at hyphen home. We're now going to hear the talk from this week's Church at Home service. Today's reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, hello there, Christchurch family. If you don't know me, my name is Tim and with my wife, Jackie, we lead the Stockwell service. So great to be speaking to you today. Before I get started, actually, I just wanted to pause to enjoy this sound. Do you know what that sound is? That is the sound of two children at school after 80 consecutive days at home with us. 80 days! We could have travelled around the world in that point. Uh, I know for many of you this Monday was no big deal. You're still very much waiting for that moment where you can actually meet up with more than one friend outside at least. Get a haircut. I know I am too, but we have to say that this week was a game changer for us. And for all of you people watching today with kids, well done. A huge well done we made it. Uh, So as you may know, if you've been tuning in uh, regularly, we are in the middle of a series about living a spirit-filled life. And our hope is that through this series, we're able to understand the Spirit's role in our lives and encourage one another to live lives full of the Spirit. And today we're going to be looking at what the Apostle Paul says is one of the Holy Spirit's key roles in our lives, which is to bring about our adoption into God's family and to make real to us the incredible truth that God is now our Father who loves us. Now, I know that speaking about God as a Father who adopts us on Mother's Day can feel like poor timing. I hear that. I'm very happy to hold up my hands and to point them towards Liam and say he put this series together. But actually, I do think that focusing on the sacrificial love of our mothers does help us with this very passage. And so that is what we're going to do later on. But first, we're going to take a look at what Paul means by adoption. So adoption appears to be a favourite metaphor that Paul uses to explain the work of the Spirit in our lives, and it crops up several times in his letters. As well as in this letter to the church in Rome, he references adoption in his letter to the Galatians and the Ephesians as well. The Galatians passage in particular is almost word for word what we find here in Romans. And so it seems that Paul found this metaphor that really worked for him and he kept on coming back to it. And that's probably because it is such a rich and multi-layered metaphor, especially when you consider how adoption actually worked within Roman culture at the time. Now, it can be really easy for us to import our modern cultural understandings of words and concepts back into the scriptures as we read them. So we can easily bring to a word like adoption what we understand adoption to be based on what adoption looks like today. But if we do that, we can miss some of the deep meaning behind Paul's use of the word. So a few important things to realise about adoption in Roman culture. The first is that adopted children were almost exclusively male. The second is that adoption was a practice mostly carried out by the wealthy elite, by people who had lands and titles and wealth 
to be passed on, to be inherited. And the third is that the sons adopted are actually most often adults, not young boys. So this isn't to say that people didn't look after children with no parents. In Jewish culture, it was just a given that if a parent or a husband died, then the extended family were taking the children and raised them as their own. And in fact, the early church got a reputation for taking in the kids, especially the girls that were abandoned by families who weren't able to or didn't want to raise them. But none of that is what Paul means when he uses the word adoption here, because in, a, in Roman culture, legally adopting someone was what wealthy, powerful families without sons did to secure the family legacy by adopting someone as their legal son and heir. Because as in most societies throughout history, women were excluded from inheriting their father's titles, their father's wealth, and excluded from ruling and governing as their father's heir. And so if you wanted to continue your family legacy, your family's position in society, and you didn't have any sons, you adopted a son in. In the time Paul was writing, two of the most well-known adopted sons were the first two Roman emperors. Caesar Octavian, who later came to be known as Caesar Augustus, you may recognise the name from the nativity story. He was the person that uh, forced a census where Mary and Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem. Well, he was adopted as a young adult by Julius Caesar so that he could rule Rome after Caesar's death because he didn't have any surviving sons. And interestingly, several years after Julius Caesar's death, he was determined to have been a god. And so not only did Julius Caesar enter the pantheon of Roman gods, of which there were many, but Augustus, his adopted son, came to be known as a son of God. History then repeats itself. Augustus has no living sons. And so when he's 67, he adopts Tiberius, who was 41, to rule alongside him until his death. And after his death, a few years later, when Tiberius has become emperor of Rome, Augustus is also said to have been a god. Um, and so Tiberius takes on this title of Son of God as well. So do you see how knowing this little bit of information about Roman culture helps us make a lot more sense of this particular metaphor and also helps us with what appears to be Paul's very gender exclusive language in this passage. When Paul writes in verse 14 that those who are led by the Spirit are now the sons of God and that the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. It's not because Paul is just talking to and thinking about the men at this point. This letter is addressed, addressed to all in Rome who are loved by God. Throughout the letter, he refers to his readers as brothers and sisters. In the very next verse, he refers to them as children, not sons, but children. And so Paul must be using this gender exclusive term of son here to make a specific point, to draw a specific parallel between what happens in Roman adoption and what happens to the church, what has happened to the church community in Rome, and by extension, all who believe in Jesus and have received his spirit. And that point is that we all, both men and women, should now consider ourselves to be like Tiberius. We all, both men and women, have been adopted by the true emperor, the true king. And so the full rights and privileges to uh, govern, the full authority to rule on behalf of the king have been bestowed upon each one of us. Paul says it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, in Christ, no matter what our status may be in society, we are all now considered firstborn sons in a legal Roman adoption kind of way. And so far from Paul endorsing the practice of primogeniture, which privileges sons over daughters and first sons over everyone else, he is just using a well-known cultural practice of his day to reveal a deeper truth about what has happened to us because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. I mean, imagine what uh, the, his first readers would have thought hearing this for the first time. 
this small, culturally insignificant community of women and men who are not likely, who are, sorry, most likely very similar to the community in Corinth, which Paul wrote, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many were of noble birth. Not many of you had status and power and influence in Roman society, Paul says. I mean, some of them literally would still have been slaves. But now, through receiving the spirit of Jesus, they and we have been adopted as firstborn sons of the true God. And so we are now heirs of the true kingdom. Co-heirs with Jesus, who is our brother. Co-heirs with one another. We are brothers and sisters in this. So you see that one of the ways that Paul is using this metaphor of adoption is to help us to realise that, yes... The Spirit has brought about a new identity, a new status, a new relationship. But our adoption has also brought about for us a new purpose. And that is to see, to work for God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of love and justice and true peace to be extended to the ends of the earth. For those of us familiar with the idea of being adopted into God's family, it can be easy just to focus on the relational aspect of that. And don't worry, we are going to get there. But before we do, I don't want us to miss this aspect of adoption too. That our adoption gives us a kingdom purpose and a kingdom authority. To those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, who have invited and received the spirit into their lives. We have been adopted that we might become heirs. That we might inherit now the kingdom of heaven for us to govern and to extend which means that our adoption isn't just good news for us, it's good news for the world, it's good news for London. Yes, our adoption brings with it great benefits to us personally, but it also brings with it a responsibility, a responsibility to work to see the kingdom of Jesus come in our part of the world as it is in heaven. Like Tiberius, we haven't just been adopted so we get to enjoy the trappings of palace life, we've been adopted to rule and reign alongside the king. But just like the early church, just like Jesus, our ruling and reigning is very different to Rome's. It's going to look like costly, sacrificial love. It's going to look like spending ourselves on behalf of the poor and fighting injustice and standing up for the oppressed. It's going to look like using our power and our privilege and our influence for and alongside others rather than over and against them. And as we do all that, it's going to look like letting everyone know that this adoption that we have experienced is not exclusive to us. It is not just for one lucky son. It is available for everyone. So first of all, adoption is purposeful. It's about reigning and governing as an adopted son or daughter of the king. It's about joining God and bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. But then Paul does ground this purpose, the purpose that our adoption gives us in the loving, intimate relationship that is now ours with God, our Father. Our adoption by God is deeper than a legal Roman adoption. And because of that, Paul says that we are now all children, not just legal firstborn sons, but dearly loved, beloved children of God. And it is the Spirit's role in our life to make that truth come alive within us. By the Spirit we cry, Abba Father, Paul writes. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, that we are his beloved. Abba, as you may know, is that Aramaic word for dad or papa. And it was and still is a term used which is full of affection and love, um, used by children and adults alike for their father. 
And crucially, it was a term that no one in history thought to use of the all-powerful, all-knowing creator until Jesus. Jesus's revelation of God was not just as the divine universal father, but as Abba, as his Abba. And that was a game changer. Other religions had understood their God as like divine fathers or divine mothers, particularly with regards to the act of creation or procreation. But no one had ever spoken of God like Jesus did. No one had ever expressed such a tender, intimate, mutually loving relationship with the divine until him. God is described a handful of times in the Old Testament as father, 11 in total. But Jesus describes God as father more than 170 times. He never addresses God in prayer by any other title or name. And it is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the crucifixion, when Jesus was wrestling with the enormity of what is about to happen, where he's at his most vulnerable, where his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death, that we are allowed to eavesdrop onto his conversation, his prayer in private for the first time, and we hear him crying out to his Abba to save him. In Jesus' use of the Aramaic Abba, Robert Hamilton Kelly writes, we understand that the intimacy and accessibility of Almighty God is the essence of Jesus's good news. God is not distant, aloof, not anti-human, not angry, sullen, withdrawn. God draws near, very near. God is with us. Jesus came to reveal his Father to us and to make a way for us to enter into relationship with him as our Father, as our Abba too. And the way he does this is through the cross. It's in John's Gospel that we see this most clearly. Throughout John's account, Jesus refers to God over and over as Father, but it's always either my Father or the Father. The first time in John's Gospel that the disciples are told by Jesus that his Father is now to be their Father too, is when Jesus speaks to Mary in the garden after his death and resurrection. He says to her, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. As New Testament scholar, Sister Teresa Akure writes, with Mary's message, the disciples are told that they and Jesus now share the same parent in God. They are in truth brothers and sisters of Jesus in God in much the same way as children related who share the same father and mother. Only now, after his death and resurrection, does Jesus make his father and God in the full sense the father and God of his disciples. The cross is the moment that secures our adoption as God's children. And I think maybe at this point, in order to reveal the true cost of making a way for us to be brought into his family, I think it's helpful to change metaphors to another family-making event. In John's opening paragraph, this is what he writes. He says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. It is on the cross where God's new family is born. In fact, in his retelling of the crucifixion, John adds a detail the other gospel writers don't. He mentions that when the Roman soldier came to check if Jesus was dead, he thrust a spear into his side and blood and water flowed from it. 
As Catholic theologian Janet Soskis points out, ancient and venerable, well-respected exegetical traditions have seen the blood and the water flowing from Christ's pure side as emblematic of birth. This is where the new family is born. Last week, Raph looked at Jesus' worth in Nicodemus that to enter into God's family, we must be born from above, born again, born of the Spirit. And it is on the cross that we see what us being born again cost. From my very limited experience, which was obviously very much as an anxious observer rather than an active participant in the birth of our two girls, bringing new life into the world, creating a new family looks to be very painful. It looks to be very personally costly, no matter how smoothly the pregnancy and the birth might go. One of them was like hugely violent and both were pretty dangerous. Giving birth is an act of selfless love and an act of personal sacrifice that may be replicated hundreds of thousands of times every single day. But its frequency and normalcy doesn't detract from its incredible Christ-likeness. This image of the cross of the birth of God's family reminded me of a poem I came across a few years ago that I've been wanting to share ever since I heard it. It's by a woman called Alison Woodward. You can find the full version online by searching for her name and to be a mother. But today I've asked my friend Mercy to read part of it for us. To be a mother is to suffer, to travail in the dark, stretched and torn, exposed in half-naked humiliation, subjected to indignities for the sake of new life. To be a mother is to say, this is my body broken for you. And in the next instant, in response to the Creator's primal hunger, this is my body, take and eat. To be a mother is to self-empty, to neither slumber nor sleep, so attuned you are to cries in the night, offering the comfort of yourself and assurances of, I'm here. To be a mother is to weep over the fighting and exclusions and wounds your children inflict on one another, to long for reconciliation and brotherly love. And when all is said and done, to gather all parties, the offender and the offended, into the folds of your embrace and to whisper in their ears that they are beloved. Isn't that powerful? Doesn't it help to bring to life a different aspect of what was happening on the cross? Doesn't it help to deepen our understanding of Christ's self-giving love for us? to help personalise the sacrifice he made, the way he allowed his body to be broken for you, in order to bring about your new life, bring you into his family. Doesn't the image of a mother in childbirth bring a new understanding to the words of the writer to the Hebrews when he says, it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. It was the joy of your new life the joy of you in his family, the joy of you experiencing the love of the Father that Christ endured the cross. 
And so circling back to Paul's words that as co-heirs with Christ, we get to share in his glory, we get to share in his inheritance now, if we also share in his sufferings. We see that what Paul is getting at here, I think, is that in order to see Jesus' kingdom extended across the earth, in order to see scores and scores of people come to faith in Jesus and know the love of his Father, then we too will need to embrace the self-sacrifice, the suffering that comes with giving birth to new life, just as Jesus did, just as Paul and the early church did. In fact, just as every community of Jesus' followers have done, as they work to bring light and life into places where there is currently darkness and chaos. And so along with Paul today, I'm inviting us to remember who we are and whose we are. I'm inviting us to remember the love of our Father and to ask the Holy Spirit to make it ever more real to us. I'm inviting us to remember the purpose for which we have been chosen and called and the authority that now belongs to us in bringing the kingdom. And I'm inviting us to remember our suffering, self-sacrificing King who gave of his broken body in order to give you, me, us life. And who in his life and death has shown us how we're to go about bringing the kingdom and extending his family. Let me just pray for us and then we're going to worship again together. And I'd encourage you, if possible, where, we are, where you are, to try still yourself, still your mind, open your heart to God and just invite the Holy Spirit to fall upon you again in this moment. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall upon each one of us in every room Come now, Holy Spirit. We invite you again to speak to us again of the love that our Father has for us. That we are dearly loved children. That we have been chosen. That we are wanted. We are wanted as part of your family. That we get to call our Father Abba. Abba Father, we, we thank you for your love for us and we want to rest in that today. But Spirit, I pray you'd also just impress upon us this incredible inheritance that is ours now to rule and reign in your kingdom, to see your kingdom extended. And I pray even in this moment that you would be speaking and nudging and guiding us specific ways that you want us to play our part I thank you that we all have a part to play in this. Speak to us about our individual part and what our part as a community uh, in London, looking to see your kingdom, what that looks like. Where is it that you want us to rule and to reign and to extend your kingdom? I pray speak to us in this moment. And I pray also, just as we reflect upon Jesus, the cost of giving our new life birth, I pray, Lord, that you would make that real to us too. In this moment, as we remember God as our Father who loves us like a mother, with a self-sacrificing, costly love, a love that willingly broke his body and shed his blood that we might be brought into his family. God, we just pray 
fill us again with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to ChristchurchLondon.org.